This is an AMI podcast. Reality was starting to set in, and I seriously was wondering if I would never get to see anything ever again. Becky Zarr shares her personal experiences as a healthcare provider and young mom with total vision loss. I remember saying to her, Mom, I'm not strong enough. I had hit my rock bottom. My mom replied back to me, You can do this because you have a little boy who needs you. The Blind Reality. New episodes every second Tuesday of the month. Download this AMI podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Eating disorders refer to conditions where people experience severe disturbances in their eating behaviors and related thoughts and emotions. Eating disorders have lasting impacts on health and well-being. COVID-19 has caused massive disruptions to routines and schedules. For many people, this represents a significant loss of control in their lives. People have turned to a range of coping behaviors. A recent Public Health of Canada study found that alcohol and substance use has gone up amongst Canadians while physical activity has declined. So for those with a pre-existing eating disorder or for those who are predisposed to an eating disorder, COVID-19 creates additional risk factors and fewer treatment options. Today, we discuss eating disorders and COVID-19. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Joitha Gupta and I'm the host of the program. It's great to be with you today and I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are keeping safe and staying connected with your friends and family. I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about eating disorders and COVID-19. It's an, an issue that we've touched on briefly in the past on this program and I have wondered if COVID-19 may have had an impact, obviously an adverse impact on people dealing with eating disorders. My guest today is Jacqueline Siegel, who is a researcher and PhD candidate at Western University and uh, is part of some ongoing research that's looking at this issue. Jacqueline, welcome to The Pulse. It's really great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I touched on this very briefly in the introductory essay, but when we talk about an eating disorder or eating disorders, what are we talking about? It's a range of things, right? Yeah. So when we talk about any kind of psychiatric condition, typically we will refer to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. So the most recent version of that was published in 2013, and it outlines three primary categories of eating disorders in adult populations. There are different types of eating disorders that are applicable mostly to children, um, but the three primary ones that, that we see diagnosed, at least in adults, are anorexia nervosa, uh, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder. So anorexia nervosa is characterized by a restriction of caloric intake, um, and oftentimes uh, uh, um, extreme exercise accompanies that uh, mm -hmm. restriction. Bulimia nervosa is uh, sort of binge eating with uh, the addition of compensatory behaviors in order to try to compensate for uh, the binge that you have done. So we'll see oftentimes with bulimia, people will eat excessive quantities um, or what would be considered to be 
more food than normal in a short period of time and then either um, engage in vomiting or diuretics or extreme exercise as a way to burn that off. And then the final one that we see is binge eating disorder. Uh, and binge eating disorder is characterized by those same kinds of uncontrollable binge eating behaviors, but fewer compensatory behaviors. And so these are the three primary categories that we see for eating disorders, but not everyone's experience and not everyone's behaviors and symptoms neatly fit into one of these boxes. So it's also possible for people to be diagnosed with a condition called eating disorder, not otherwise specified, or um, ARFID. So there's kind of a range of behaviors and a range of conditions, but uh, it's typically the restriction of eating, the binge eating, and uh, sometimes disordered exercise and a pathological desire to either become thin or an uncontrollable uh, kind of urge to eat. Uh, and I would say those are kind of the primary uh, behavioral uh, and diagnostic categories for eating disorders. The other thing I wanted to touch on before we get into the particulars of the COVID-19 situation is um, I found at least that there's a stereotype of the kind of person that might have an eating disorder. We often think of young women, uh, white, thin, often excruciatingly so. Um, I'm just wondering, is that when you when you sort of look at patients, is that what you end up seeing most of the time or is there variation? I mean, do people with uh, different body sizes have eating disorders? And what about men? Do they have eating disorders? Yes. So you are touching on something that is pretty critical to a lot of my own research. Um, and when we talk about the paper, I'll, I'll discuss how lots of different perspectives and lots of different uh, disciplines within the eating disorders research field came together for this particular project. But I, as a social psychologist, am very interested in how eating disorders are perceived by others and how cultural forces can influence eating disorders. So when we talk about stereotypes, you are absolutely correct. We the stereotype that immediately comes to mind is a thin, young, white, wealthy woman, and people often consider eating disorders to be a condition that is, uh, you know, rooted in vanity and a desire to look pretty. Um, mm. While it is true that we do see uh, an increased prevalence of eating disorder diagnoses, at least, uh, among young women, that does not necessarily mean that eating disorders don't occur in other people. Um, mm -hmm. So, for example, we know that individuals who are at higher weight statuses or even who are at kind of normal weight statuses um, by BMI classifications, they have more difficulty receiving an eating disorder diagnosis than other people. Mm -hmm. And that's simply because, um, well, for a while there was a BMI cutoff point for anorexia, at least, uh, mm -hmm. but also because we're not trained to see eating disorders in people of higher weights. Oftentimes, we will actually praise or valorize the same eating disorder behaviors um, in higher weight people uh, that we would clinically diagnose as eating disorders in, in thin body people. So eating disorders mm -hmm. can certainly occur to anyone across the weight spectrum. And I, I really do want to stress that point, um, that mm -hmm. eating disorders are underdiagnosed in, in people at normal weights and at higher weights, but that does not mean that they don't exist. Uh, so mm -hmm. that's some of the, the weight stigma aspect of it. Uh, it's mm -hmm. absolutely critical that people understand that eating disorders can and do influence men. Um, and there's a higher prevalence rate among sexually minor sexual minority men, but they occur in men across the sexuality spectrum, across the age race spectrum, uh, and of course, across the weight spectrum. So it's really important that people understand that men do develop eating disorders um, uh, 
and they're less diagnosed and they're less well understood and there are fewer treatment options for men. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes they manifest a little differently. So um, there's been a push to get muscularity oriented disordered eating recognized as a clinically significant eating disorder because right now muscle dysmorphia falls under um, obsessive compulsive disorders in the diagnostic and statistical manual and it's not recognized as an eating disorder. But we mm -hmm. often do see that when eating disorders present in men that there is an increased drive for muscularity compared to in women. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, we see the same kind of praising and valorizing of gym behaviors and, and really disordered and dysregulated eating for men, and we're not problematizing it. So yes, uh, certainly eating disorders can occur in people of any people with any types of bodies uh, who are living with any kind of backgrounds. Uh, eating disorders are definitely, they can affect anyone. I'm speaking to Jackie Siegel from Western University about the prevalence of eating disorders during COVID-19. Let's talk a little bit about the pandemic. I think uh, a lot of us experienced a loss in our regular routine. That might have included things like going to the gym um, and just generally having to revise our daily schedules as we made the shift to working from home. Do you know if this loss of, of a schedule or a routine translated into a sense of losing control of one's life and thereby contributing to eating disorders? So uh, I don't have data to support that. Uh, I cannot say with any sort of certainty. I don't have longitudinal data to su support that hypothesis. But uh, I can certainly see, given the importance of establishing and maintaining routines for healthy eating disorder recovery and establishing healthy eating patterns, that kind of... Um, disruption to one's daily life and one's daily routine can certainly cause people, can potentially cause people to look for coping mechanisms that allow them to reestablish that sense of control. And for individuals with eating disorders, we do know that oftentimes um, managing eating or attempting at least to control one's eating can be one of those mechanisms. But I myself have not conducted any research to support <laughs> that. So I don't want to say with any sort of certainty that that is precisely what is happening. That, well, I'm sorry for putting you in that spot, but I was so curious <laughs> about it. Um, the other thing I've been wondering about, and because I do this a lot myself, is um, often make comparisons with other people's bodies. Now, compared to me, she's so thin. Compared to me, she's quite overweight, for example. Um, I'm assuming that we're doing less of that now under COVID conditions. One is then led to believe, or at least I'm led to believe, that if we're not making these body-based comparisons, maybe there would actually be a lower incidence of eating disorders. I'm just speculating. I'm not even a researcher, but what do you think? I think that in an ideal world, that is certainly something that we could potentially see happening. And as we were starting to generate ideas for this paper, it was certainly something that we were considering of how may eating disorders potentially how may the severity of eating disorders potentially alleviate during this time? Uh, and we were, at least I, as someone who does research on body eating and exercise-related social comparisons, mm -hmm. I was uh, kind of excited about that. However, um, we do also know that there's been an uptick in appearance-related, in particular, social media use. And so while we're not seeing as many other people's bodies we're actually seeing something which could potentially be somewhat worse, which is photoshopped images of people's bodies. And so mm -hmm. while, while of course we're not seeing uh, people in our yoga classes and at, at work, whatever, comparing ourselves to them, 
we're seeing images that have been doctored up potentially to make people look even more, you know, aesthetically pleasing. The social media oftentimes does create this illusion of perfection, an illusion of bodily perfection in particular. So we're not seeing real things to compare ourselves against right now. Uh, people with eating disorders in particular are seeing doctored bodies that are unrealistic. And oftentimes, even when we know that those photos may be uh, photoshopped, they still have the same effect of making us mm -hmm. feel worse about ourselves. I'm Joyita Gupta, and with me is a Western University researcher and PhD candidate, social psychology student, Jackie Siegel. We're talking today about eating disorders, their incidence, prevalence, and the ways in which they can be treated during COVID-19. You know, Jackie, I do remember trying to shop for groceries when the pandemic first began and seeing these empty shelves, cans, all gone anything, uh, frozen foods, all gone. And I'm just wondering about the food security issues that may have, that, that undoubtedly came up during the pandemic, whether people felt the pressure to hoard food or felt immense amounts of pressure associated with cooking at home. Did any of these broader systemic factors around food supply and food security uh, come into play when we think about eating disorders and their diagnosis during the pandemic? Yes, absolutely. This was actually the first thing that we, the first idea that we generated when we were thinking about potential risk factors for individuals living with eating disorders was this radically different way that we're engaging with food right now. And so we wrote this paper back in April, and this was during the period of time when any sort of trips outside of your home were really, really discouraged. So people were stocking up on groceries I had one friend who stocked up for three months, and I genuinely don't know how any individual does that. But people were <laughs> stocking up from, yeah, they were going to the grocery stores less. They were filling their pantries more. And mm. the flexible and intuitive way that we sometimes try to engage with food that allows us to kind of explore options and find what feels good as far as consumption goes those options were sorely restricted and, and really limited for people. Uh, and we were dealing with kind of a, a just completely different experience of food. So mm -hmm. what we know is that, at, and something else that you brought up, I should also mention, is this legitimate scarcity of food in some areas. And so, of course, going to the grocery store and seeing empty shelves can be stressful for anyone. But mm -hmm. uh, for individuals with eating disorders, this real or perceived scarcity of food can really be rather triggering. So when we talk about eating disorders, we talk about potential feast or famine patterns. So mm -hmm. your brain uh, can sometimes work in ways that can distress you when you are going through these fluctuations of knowing that there will be food for a while and then you won't have it for an extended mm -hmm. period of time. So during that period of time that you have it, you are more inclined to really uh, kind of Eat as much of it as you can, knowing that you may need to uh, prepare your body for a period where there is less food. Um, and so this feast or, batter, feast or famine pattern uh, that is associated with food scarcity can be really, really distressing for people with eating disorders and trying to uh, kind of not listen to the eating disorder brain, or as Dr. Jennifer Gaudion calls it, the caveman brain. 
Uh, mm. Trying to kind of beat that system can be really challenging for, for individuals who have eating disorders, particularly uh, those who are malnourished and may not have the cognitive capacity at that point in time to grapple with some of those complex and really powerful ideas. Uh, but we also know that for people with eating disorders, both for people who are in recovery, but also people who are striving towards recovery, there are oftentimes specific foods that you are, I mean, not required to eat, uh, but you are strongly encouraged to eat. So for mm -hmm. people who are following meal plans, they may have specific categories of foods that they have to eat throughout the day in order to ensure that they're receiving proper nutrition while they restore their weight. And for people who are... Um, you know, only going to the grocery store every so often, they may not have access to the kinds of fresher foods that they need. Or if they, you know, run low on one thing, they may not be able to meet their eating plan and their meal requirements for that day. And so that mm -hmm. can cause an issue. But then also we know that during periods of distress and, you know, even periods of, of less distress, but for individuals with eating disorders, often we talk about safe foods. And while, of course, we don't want people to rely explicitly on foods that they feel comfortable eating compared to other foods that we want them to explore eating uh, and feeling more comfortable around. Uh, lack of access to even safe foods can make people mm -hmm. who are experiencing distress uh, kind of not eat at all. And mm -hmm. we know that the pandemic is a stressful time for everyone. And so we can anticipate that people would fall back on their safe foods and without potential access to them, we may see, um, unfortunately, even more disordered eating behaviors. So that's definitely something uh, that we need to be mindful of. But then even kind of at the broader social level, we know that with unemployment uh, and there is a greater need for access to food pantries uh, mm -hmm. and food stamps. And for people who cannot purchase the food that they need or are only able to now get food that uh, they don't have as much control over it as much choice receiving, then that can be stressful as well. So there's just a lot of different factors at play here, all of which center around food. Mm -hmm. I know a few minutes ago, Jacqueline, you mentioned that we don't have a lot of research and evidence yet about the impacts of COVID-19 on eating disorders. Your paper came out in April. I know there's been some research done since, but Many of us have drawn parallels between what's happening now and the SARS outbreak, which was not obviously the same, but quite similar. Uh, and, it, and I'm wondering if at that time there was some research or some studies that might inform how eating disorder patients are, are dealing with the pandemic. Did you, did you have a chance to look back on the SARS outbreak? Yes. So when we were constructing the literature review for this paper, we did look to pass literature on public health outbreaks and other traumatic and tragic events. So we do know that during the SARS outbreak, uh, there was some data that suggested that individuals who are recovering from SARS experienced heightened psychological distress and eating dysregulation. So what that means for individuals who may unfortunately contract COVID-19 is that their recovery may be a particularly sensitive time for eating disorder potential relapse um, because your body is going through so much at that time anyway and your mind is is certainly uh, not where it would otherwise be uh, and so that period of time could potentially be critical for those who are experiencing eating disorders uh, but we also know from the SARS outbreak that healthcare workers and those who were in hospitals and operating rooms uh, during the SARS outbreak 
actually experienced increased burnout and post-traumatic stress after that experience. So for individuals with eating disorders who may be working in hospitals, there is the potential for um, increased symptomatology and PTSD potentially even who, um, for those who are working through this. And of course, that goes for people with or without eating disorders. We just know that this is going to be a particularly stressful period for people. And during the SARS outbreak, men reported lower life satisfaction and were more likely to develop an eating disorder compared to women. So mm-hmm. there is certainly, um, I'm sorry, did I say an eating disorder? More likely to uh, develop a psychological disorder. So we do know that men who are already susceptible to eating disorders may experience uh, heightened symptomatology or may actually develop an eating disorder during this time. We've got a few minutes left. I'm speaking to Jackie Siegel from Western University about eating disorders during COVID-19. I want to talk to you a little bit about treatments. While it's true that healthcare is not being delivered in quite the way that we're used to, we're seeing an, an uptick in e-health and telehealth. How effectively can we treat an eating disorder with access to things like e-health or telehealth? Because I know that it often requires monitoring weight or, um, you know, monitoring the food that someone eats. Is it even feasible to do those things remotely? Um, So I do want to begin by saying that there is some debate in the eating disorder recovery field about whether specifically monitoring food and weight are essential for eating disorder recovery. There's um, there's some weight neutral folks. There are some people who suggest that weighing is not necessary. Um, I do not, I do not and will not take a stance on that particular debate. However, um, it's, the question is somewhat complicated because there are various levels of care for individuals with eating disorders. So at the most acute level, um, some people may need inpatient or residential treatment, and it would certainly I mean, there might be a creative way to do it. However, it would certainly be challenging for an individual Mm -hmm. to simulate, uh, for for any kind of e-health, to simulate the residential or inpatient eating disorder experience. Because for people who are dealing with acute eating disorders, those vitals do often need to be checked. Um, Mm -hmm. However, for day patient, like partial hospitalization programs or outpatient programs, telehealth and e-health, while it does not sound as... um, doesn't really sound as appealing, it doesn't sound as personal, and it doesn't sound like it would be as effective, there is a pretty substantial body of literature to suggest that e-health and telehealth has the potential to serve just to, to be just as effective as in-person and face-to-face treatment. And particularly for individuals who are experiencing a mental health crisis, um, if you do not have access to face-to-face therapy, mm-hmm. e-health, e, uh, like electronic and telehealth, are absolutely critical tools that people need to be aware of because they do have the possibility and the potential to really, really help you and stop the kind of disorder and cognitive processes that are going on for you. Uh, It's really, really important that people do recognize that help is available for people, even if it may not sound like the traditional therapy style. In the few minutes that we have left, I just want to ask you about the role of messaging. So when I was at university, they talked to me about the freshman 15, and now we're talking about the quarantine 15. In the course of this pandemic, thinking about eating disorders, do we have an obligation to think about the messages we're putting out there? Yes, we absolutely do. 
Uh, we do know that there has been a proliferation of this idea of the quarantine 15, meaning the potential that you will gain weight during quarantine. Um, yes, it's certainly harmful. Yes, we know that weight stigma is prevalent, pervasive, and rampant, even outside of the pandemic. But it does seem like this pandemic has really heightened up a lot of that weight stigmatizing messaging. So not the paper that we're talking about today, but I've done some additional work with the Center for Body Image Research and Policy out of University of Missouri. And what we found was that 40% of women and 46% of men said that they would prefer to get to develop uh, COVID-19 rather than uh, gain 25 pounds. The thought of gaining 25 pounds was scarier to them than developing COVID. So we know that weight stigmatizing messaging in general, and particularly during this pandemic, are, um, are really having an adverse effect on people and could, I mean, potentially even be affecting people's behaviors and certainly their mental health. Uh, weight stigma in general uh, is associated with increased uh, experiences of weight stigma is, is associated with dysregulated eating. And ironically, uh, experiences of weight stigma are associated with higher weight uh, and higher weight longitudinally. So while people may think that they're kidding or that potentially they're even shaming someone into quote unquote, healthier eating behaviors or healthier exercise behaviors. We know that stigma uh, and shame and discrimination can have an extremely negative effect on people. Uh, it's not funny, it's not a joke, and particularly for people who are struggling to maintain or gain weight uh, in order to be healthy and in order to heal themselves from what is considered to be the, uh, the psychological condition with the highest mortality rate of any of the other conditions. Uh, these messages can be really, really, detrimental to people's eating disorder recovery progress. Uh, I cannot stress enough how important it is that we allow people to uh, cope with this pandemic in the ways that they need to uh, and the ways that they want to. Uh, and so even joking about the quarantine 15 can really, really have an adverse effect on people. And I strongly discourage people from even you know, a silly Facebook post about it because you never know who's watching. You never know who sees that and what message that communicates to them. Jackie Siegel, thank you very much for being on the program today. It's uh, really been a pleasure speaking to you and the time has flown by. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. That was Jacqueline Siegel, a PhD candidate and researcher, social psychologist at Western University, and we talked quite extensively about COVID-19 and eating disorders. If you missed any of my conversation, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. We're almost up against the clock, so I'll have a few thoughts on the show blog there. I'd like to thank Jacqueline Siegel for being on the program today. The technical producer for the pulse is Nisreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio, and Paula Deneen is our technical CEO. Supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening. Stay safe, and we will talk to you very soon right here on The Pulse on AMI Audio. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.
Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.